And now, if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 4, we're going through the temptation narratives over and over again. Maybe you're wondering, what, where's the Christmas sermon? Well, part of that will be next week, but also, everything we do here is Christmas. My golly. Uh, you know, Jesus, we're celebrating the birth of Jesus. Jesus came to, among other things, help us overcome temptation. Huh? So this is a Christmas sermon. There. And in case you're wondering why I'm so fashionably dressed lately, you've been wondering about this, haven't you? It's because my daughter married this fashion guy who runs a buckle store, and I get all these new clothes uh, a, a year, you know, once they're out of date, they pass them on. So do I look good or what? I'm telling you, I just, I, I used to, do you remember back? Now I'm just one year behind the season. I used to be about 12. I, I, you know, I, I was still wearing turtlenecks up till last year. So, so this is a, a vast improvement. So we're looking at the... Uh, uh, Temptation Narratives, Luke chapter 12. And this message is going to have two parts to it. The first part is, is more the theory. The second part is going to be the application. The first part that is theory is going to be intense. Uh, I'm going to pack a whole lot in here. But for a good portion of us, it will be review. So I think I can be intense because it will be more reminder than anything else. And what I want to do here more than anything else is to paint a big picture. A big picture of what's going on. When it, con- when it concerns temptation, which is really to ask the question, what's going on as it concerns obedience? Because obedience is simply resisting temptation, and temptation is simply forsaking obedience. So I want to look at the big picture. The thing I want to most prevent, or help us prevent, is thinking that temptation is primarily about what you do in a given moment when you face a particular decision. That temptation is mainly about saying no when you want to say yes. Now, that is temptation. But if that's how you think about temptation, you're going to find that you make very little progress on overcoming temptation. Uh, temptation is about, uh, it goes to the core of, of uh, what it is to walk with God. Um, and I want us to see this big picture, see the core. So we're going to go into the, really what is the deepest stuff you can possibly go on. It's also the most foundational stuff you can go on. In order to see that, for us to see that how we handle temptation doesn't depend as much on what we do in that moment as it does on everything we do when we're not being tempted. See that? It's, it's about our whole lifestyle. So here's what it says in Luke chapter 4. It says uh, that Jesus, and this is just the first two verses of chapter 4, and then the last verse of the temptation narrative. When it says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan, and he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. And then comes the three major kinds of temptation that Jesus faced. All of them had to do with his identity, as we've been seeing here the last couple weeks. And then it says, when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time, which appears to be uh, the Lord's Supper. Um, And another passage I want us to look at as I'm bringing forth this word, a very familiar one, but a very important one. Someone asked Jesus what the uh, most important command was, and Jesus replied, well, it's love, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all of your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment, but the second, and I've got to give the second if I give the first because they're two sides of the same coin. The second is love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on this. Everything hangs on this. This is the center of, of the center. It's about loving God, and loving your neighbor as yourself. What I want to do here is give three, three uh, foundational truths, which are as foundational as it comes uh, when it comes to living the kingdom life. 
they are counteracted by the enemy giving us three foundational lies that try to re refute the three foundational truths. And then we're going to give three foundational principles that will help us say no to the foundational lies and yes to the foundational truths. So we got threes all the way down. Part of the reason for that is because, though most people don't realize it, the universe is structured on threes because it's created by the Trinity, but we're not going to go into that right now. This is just about this sermon. So let's start with the foundational truth that has to do with God. Here's God. Ladies and gentlemen, here's God. Uh, so we can symbolize God as a triangle because God is triune, Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. And the most important foundational truth of the Bible is that God is love. God is love. Throughout all eternity, God is love. God's not a solitary monad existed in the emptiness of space throughout eternity until he creates a world. Rather, God from all eternity is perfect love, the love of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. God created the world out of love for the purpose of inviting the world in on God's love, which leads to this truth. God loves you. God created you because God loves you. Every moment you exist is because God loves you. If you wonder if God loves you, take a breath, and that is proof that God loves you because he's the one who gave you the power to take that breath, and he did it because he loves you. The, the love that uh, God extends towards you isn't a derivative or secondary or minimal kind of a love. Rather, the love that God is is extended towards you. Perfect love is extended towards you. Which means right now, this moment, you could not be more loved, unconditionally loved, than you are. Because God himself is towards you, not against you. God is love and God is towards you. Now, when you get that... It leads to three things happening in your life, which in its own way begins to replicate the triune God, which is why you're said to be created in the image of the triune God. When, when you really experience God's perfect, unconditional love, this is what you were created for. This is the air that uh, your spiritual lungs are to breathe. Uh, th this is, this is the, the deepest need in your, in your being. When you receive this unconditional love, what, the first thing that immediately happens is you reflect it back to God. You are created to be a little mirror of the sun that God is, to reflect the light of God, to experience the warmth of God. And so we, we love God back. He loves us, and we're wired to respond. It's as natural as breathing. We love God back. And we love God by, by worshiping him. We love God by how we live for him. Uh, we love God by agreeing with him on, on, on his opinions as he's revealed it in the world, in the word. But we love God. Uh, the second thing that happens as you receive this, this uh, unconditional love is then that you love yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself, which presupposes that you love yourself. Sometimes Christians get down on self-love. Oh, we're not supposed to love ourselves. Some Christians actually spiritualize hating yourself. But that's balderdash. It's wrong to love yourself for the wrong reasons. But it's required that you love yourself for the right reason. And the right reason to love yourself is because God loves you. Uh, you're created in the image of God. You don't compliment the artist by insulting the work of art. And so you're just agreeing with God because you love God uh, in response to his love for you. Because you love God, you agree with him that, in fact, you have unsurpassable worth. The price tag for you is revealed on Calvary, and there couldn't be a greater price tag. So you love yourself. And as you receive God's love and love God and now love yourself, then the third thing is you love your neighbor as yourself. God overflows with love towards you. This is God's abundant program. It's God's overflow program because God is an overflowing God. God, out of the fullness of love that he is, overflows with love towards you. You receiving that love now overflow with love back to God. You overflow with love towards yourself. And now you overflow like a cup running over. You overflow with love uh, towards all others. 
When you get your relationship with God arranged right, you get your relationship with yourself arranged right, and that leads to you getting your relationship with others arranged right. And all of this, notice this, it replicates, it reflects, it mirrors the triune God. And so it creates its own kind of a triangle. And all of life, the purpose of life, the goal of life, the core truth of everything is found right there. That you're made in the image of the triune God to replicate in your own way the the love of the triune God. And uh, this is the dome in which God is king. To the extent that this happens in our life, God reigns in our life. We are receiving the unconditional love. We are returning the unconditional love back to God, to ourself, and to our neighbor as ourself. This is what it is to dance with the triune God. This is what it is to fulfill the purpose for which you're made. This is what it is that we'll be doing throughout all eternity. This is what it is to live in abundant life. This is the center of all joy and all peace. Uh, This is the center of all that we are created for. You may not know it, but everything that you desire in life is found right there. That fulfills the, the deepest longings of your heart. That is the dome in which God is king. And now get this. Everything the enemy is about is directed against that dome. What I like to call the sacred triangle. I, I, I symbolize it in my own mind. As I, I, I ask the question throughout the day, am I living in the sacred triangle? Which is simply receiving that love, giving that love back to God, to myself, and to my neighbor as myself. If you live, that is the bullseye that we're, we're to be living in. And everything the enemy is about, every temptation he brings, is most fundamentally about fragmenting that, that, that triangle. It's about blocking the life that we're to get from God and then extend it to ourselves and and to others. And that leads to three foundational lies. The foundational truths are about who God is, who you are, and and who your neighbor is. The foundational lie is about who God is, who you are, and who your neighbor is. So the first thing the enemy does is he tries to tempt us with and get us to believe a lie about God. You see this in the first temptation in the Bible, the first temptation in world history, actually. It's in Genesis chapter 3. When the enemy says to Eve, did God really say you're not supposed to eat of that tree? Well, God said that because he's threatened by you. He doesn't want any competitors. You think he's a God of love, but he's not a God of love. He's an insecure God, and he doesn't want you to have the wisdom that he has. And the enemy, the enemy paints a really ugly picture of God before Eve. And when you believe an ugly, when you, when you embrace a lie about God, any picture of God that is less beautiful than Jesus Christ dying on the cross for the very people who crucified him, to the extent that you buy into that deceptive picture of God, you'll find it impossible to receive the life, the love that God has towards you. You won't trust that God to, give, to, to meet your innermost needs. So the first thing that the lie blocks is our ability to receive the love uh, from God that we are created to receive. That then leads to another thing. When you believe a lie about God, it blocks your ability to, to love God. If you have an ugly picture of God, to the extent that you've got an ugly picture of God, you may fear God, you may have external obedience towards God, you may give God lip service, but you're not going to be passionately in love with God because your picture is not the kind of God that anyone would be passionately in love with. So a lie about God blocks God's love to us and blocks our ability to love God which then has all sorts of consequences. The, the, the sacred triangle is being fragmented. Because now what happens, and this is the second foundational lie, it's a lie about you. What happens is that you are unable to love yourself. To love yourself the way God loves you. There's a lie about you. 
And this also you find in Genesis chapter 3 when the enemy says to Eve, uh, really uh, paints the picture of Eve in this way, that Eve, it's not okay for you just to live in God's presence. It's not okay with you just to walk in the cool of the day. You're not okay as you are. No, there's something defective about you. But we can remedy remedy this defect by that tree. That tree can give you what you're now lacking. What you're lacking is wisdom. What you're lacking is being like God. And so the enemy paints a picture of Eve to Eve's own brain uh, whereby she doesn't have the intrinsic worth that in fact she has because she's a child of God. And when Eve buys this, she's no longer able to love herself the way God uh, wants her to love herself because she's not believing that she's got an intrinsic worth to affirm. We often say of people who talk a lot about themselves or who brag, we all know people like that. None of us here are like that, of course, but we know people who are just kind of really big on themselves. And we sometimes say, oh, they're just too in love with themselves. But I submit to you that actually they're not too in love with themselves. In fact, they're not loving themselves at all. What they're trying to do is they're trying to love themselves. But if you believe you don't have any intrinsic worth, what you do, you can't help it. You'll be addicted to this. What you'll do is you'll latch on to activities and achievements and other things that you think have worth. And you try to cram it into your being as though it was you. You know, you're trying to give yourself some worth. And so you try to get approval and get attention by, by always highlighting these things that you think give you worth. I was at a conference a couple months ago and I was on a panel discussion on a particular topic, an academic topic, and there's this one guy who, I mean, it was amazing. <laughs> uh, you, you introduce yourself, and within 30 seconds, you already know where he went to school and what degrees he got and what achievements he's got and whatever. And, and, and the whole conference, he was doing this. And even when he presented this academic paper, and he was a smart guy, I'll grant him that, but when he presented this paper, it was like he took every possible opportunity to brag on himself. Well, I discovered this, and well, then I did this, and of course, this led to my award over here, and not that I want to say anything about it, but of course, you do know about this paper. And, and it was embarrassing. I mean, it was, it was really kind of like, do you ever get like that when someone's doing that? It's like, dude, no one cares. Really, you know, you, want, you might want to, really, no one cares. And it looks like here's a guy who's just so in love with himself, but what he is is pathetic. He, he's trying to give himself some worth. He's trying to impress people by giving himself some worth. You see, you can only love yourself in in a healthy way if you understand that you don't need to achieve your worth. You've already got it for free simply by virtue of the fact that God created you and Jesus died for you. And if you get that, if you really walk in the fullness of that experience, you don't need to be trying to do this pathetic game of always bringing before people how good you are at this, that, or the other thing, or the car you have, or the house you have, or whatever. You don't need that because you got the worth already. But see, when we believe a lie about God, we believe a lie about ourselves, and it's impossible for us to, in a healthy way, ascribe worth to ourselves because we just don't think we have it. And that, of course, leads to a lie about other people. We are created to relate to other people not out of a need, but out of a fullness, the fullness that we get from God. But if we're not getting it from God, then, then we've got to get it from some source, and so what we always try to do is to get it from other people. And now we look at people primarily in terms of how they impact us and what they can do for us. We use people. What the world calls love is, is, is usually a quid pro quo arrangement. Here's what I'll do for you and here's what you'll do for me. And we're trying to meet each other's needs, uh, the, the core needs of our life. Uh, uh, and, and, and so the, the not getting that worth from God because we believe a lie about God means that, that we can't be loving our, our neighbor as ourself. Uh, the whole thing is blocked. All this leads to a screwed up life. It's the life of idolatry. 
when we believe a foundational lie about God, ourselves, and others, what ends up happening is instead of living life out of a celebration, we live life in desperation. We're trying to feed ourselves stuff. We're trying to meet the need that God wants to, uh, to, to meet for free. And so everything becomes an idol for us. An idol is anything that we use as a, a means of meeting a need that only God can meet. So you get life and worth from your religion or your good looks or your security or your perfect family or how right your beliefs are and how God approves of you more than other people because you always believe all the right theology. And or you get life from your masculinity or you get life from your femininity or you get life from your nationality or you get life from your sexuality or you get life from your ethnicity or your great education or the wonderful possessions that you have or the marvelous achievements. And what you're, those are all good things to have and, 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 and enjoy them. But what happens is if we're walking on empty, we're sucking life off of them. And it is the opposite of what God calls us to live. Every temptation is about this. Now here's the thing. All those things can be temptations to us, aren't they? We can be tempted to get life from any of those things. And here's what I want us to see. It's good to say no to those temptations. It's necessary to say no to those temptations. But these are not the primary temptations. These are secondary temptations. The primary temptation is what precedes this. It's what makes this such a lure to us. And that is the temptation to not trust that what God says about himself is true. It's the temptation to not believe that what God says about you is true. And it's the temptation not to believe that what God says about other people is true. When, when we believe any of those lies, then these temptations become, they take on a force they otherwise would never have. Because we're looking at them hungry. If in fact we're full, there's still temptations, but we're empowered to say no to them. Freedom is not being able to say no in a crucial moment to something you desire. Freedom is being free from the desire. But to be free from the desire, to be free from the hunger, you've got to find food. The real food. And the real food, his name is Jesus Christ. He's the bread of life that we sing about this morning. It's the bread that's come down from heaven. That's why Jesus says, using stunning terms in John chapter 6, he says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. We're to be digesting Jesus on a regular basis. Because only then, if we do that on a regular basis, only then will we be empowered to say no to the enemy when the temptation comes our way. But we've got to know what we're up against. What we're up against is this. We have, from the moment of our birth, birth pretty much, and almost in a, in a seamless, unbroken way since our birth, we've been bombarded with these lies, these foundational lies. Almost every song you hear and every show you watch and everything you read has got lies in it. Uh, lies that we get in from the media, we, lies we get from, from the process of being uh, brought up in this fallen world. It can come from a million different sources. But these lies get deeply rooted, which means if we're going to make progress on growing in Christ-likeness and saying no to the things we used to fall into, we've got to pay close attention to what's going on between our ears, not just in the crucial moments, but rather all the time, becoming detectives of our own mind. When, a, when an athlete wants to run a race, he doesn't start thinking about the race when he gets up to the starting line. Or if, if that is the first time he's thought about the race, he's not going to do real well. No, if you want to run a race, you've got to train for it. You've got to practice. Or if you want to be in gymnastics, you've got to train for it. You've got to practice your mind and your body. You've got to bring them into alignment. Uh, anything that's worth doing well is, is going to require practice. Same thing in warfare. We don't just grab civilians and throw them into a, you know, a, a, a city at war. Uh, maybe in emergency situations, some armies do that. But what you want to do is have boot camp where you train them and, and take them out of a civilian mindset and give them a battle kind of mindset and then send them off to war. 
Well, we are, folks, we are in spiritual battle. We are in war. This is real stuff here. And so if there's any people on the planet who, who live disciplined lives, and by the way, the word disciple is simply the word disciplined one. We are to be disciplined. But if there's anyone on this planet who, who lives intentionally, on purpose, thinking about what they're thinking about, uh, guarding their minds, preparing for battle, if there's any people on the planet who do it, it ought to be us. To live on purpose with intentionality. Jesus didn't come to make believers. He came to make disciples. And being a disciple is not just about what you do in crucial moments. It's about how you live and how you think 24-7. Now, what I want to do now, and now we're transitioning to the practical application part of this message, um, is, is present a model that we have here at Woodland Hills Church that we got from Dallas Willard in his marvelous book, Renovation of the Heart. It is the VIM model. V stands for vision, I stands for intention, and M stands for means. And uh, it's a model that we're to live in and practice. And so to, to talk about this, I've asked Kevin Calligan, the righteous, the wise, to come up and share with us. Go for it, man. All right. So I'm a wise guy, eh? You're a wise guy. Yeah. Wise guy. All right. Wise guy. All right. Well, good to be up here with you. He's our care pastor, by the way. All right. And he really is the wise guy. Um, Greg, you mentioned earlier that uh, it's what we do uh, before we're tempted that's going to determine what plays out when we're tempted. And you just talked a moment ago about how an athlete doesn't just show up for a race and decide to just run the race. They do a lot of things beforehand that allow them to run the race and, and yes. finish the race. And I think one of the biggest mistakes that we make in the Christian life, in my experience, in my opinion, personal experience and working with others, is that we just try to do all of the things that the Bible tells us to do. We just try to do those things, as opposed to training ourselves with mm. God's help to become able to do those same things. And there's a big difference between trying and training. If we just try to do things that are... You know what I'm saying? I, I got a revelation from oh, God. Oh, quit cutting me off. He's always doing that. I know. I, I can't help it. <laughs> but it, really, we shouldn't be asking, what would Jesus do? We ought to be asking, how did Jesus train? How did Jesus train? All right, what's the acronym for that? How w did Jesus... H-D-J-T. HDTV. HD. How did oh. Jesus train? That's the issue. Because right. Jesus couldn't do what he did unless he trained like he trained. So Greg's going to print out some new bumper stickers good, and good, make good. a few little extra dollars. We get bracelets, man. We can cash in on this. This is going to be hard to do. I got the patent. I don't want anyone stealing this. Now, Greg, would you exercise a little discipline okay, here? Sorry, and sorry. Zip okay. sorry, Daddy. So we can imagine many times we've done this as Christians. We've just tried to do some things that are in the Christian life, like being patient, loving your enemies, turning the other cheek, trying to do things that really are only possible as a result of training. And what happens when we do that? We fail. And then we decide that either we're flawed, we're incompetent, or we decide that this thing really isn't possible, and we give up, and we settle for just being the same old way. And Jesus didn't die for us and, and in order for us to just stay the way that he found us. He really wants us to become more like him. That's what discipleship's all about. That's what the Christian life is all about, transformation. And so it really is possible, but it's only possible through training, a program of training in Christ-likeness. And that's where the VIM piece comes in. As Greg mentioned earlier, Dallas Willard developed this VIM, VIM model. He's a writer who talks exclusively or extensively about spiritual transformation. And he developed this three-part model, VIM, vision, intention, means. In order for us to change or to work at doing something that doesn't come naturally, we need to see what, why that matters. What's the point of this change? What's the point of learning how to do this thing or being able to do this thing? What difference will it make for me? What difference will it make in the lives of other people? What difference will it make for God's kingdom? And we need to have that vision then be something that's really clear and vivid and concrete in our minds. Not just an idea, but it's something we can see, we can taste, we can touch, we can feel. 
And so we see it so clearly that it then generates this excitement, this anticipation, this sense of possibility, and out of that then comes the I, the intention. A strong vision will generate a powerful intention. What intention is, is just a commitment. It's a commitment or a decision to do whatever's in my power to bring that vision into reality, as a reality in my life and as a reality for God's kingdom. And so those two things work together. If the intention starts to get a little weak, we need to beef up the vision a little bit, and they work together. But those two things aren't enough yet to change me. They're the start and they're the motivator that drives change. But I still need to do some things in order to become a different person. Change is the result of actions. And so that's where the M comes in, the means part. Means are any activities that are currently in my power to do that if I do them regularly and consistently over time, I will be transformed. Mm -hmm. They will help me become a different kind of person. And Dallas Willard's definition of discipline, I think, is really beautiful in this regard. He says, a discipline is anything that's in my current power, my current ability to do, that helps me to become something that I'm not currently able to do. So I'm currently able to do these activities, and in doing them, I'll be able to do something I can't do right now. And that's what training is all about. All training involves intentional activities that incrementally bring me towards change and growth. So to illustrate this VIM process, maybe it's just kind of an abstract idea, but we're going to use Greg. He's going to be our guinea pig up here. And uh, Greg has trained and become proficient at a few things in his life. Few. Just, a, just a couple things. Um, and so we're going <laughs> to talk with Greg. He's feeding on some life. He's needing a little bit of life here. He's feeling a little empty. I'm Greg, you're really good. Huh? He's pretty pathetic. Feed me. Um, so, Greg, what are some things that you've either in the past you've had to train at in order to become good, or maybe something you're training yourself in right now, and we'll kind of illustrate how this mm -hmm. VIM plays out. Well, the biggest task, uh, new endeavor I have right now is um, trying to learn Latin. Trying to learn Latin. Yeah. All right. Yep. Okay. Well, that's an interesting one. Yep. So this will be perfect. Um, I'm, the question that's probably coming to your mind is coming to my mind is why in the world would you want to learn Latin? <laughs> the, vision, the vision part really answers the question, what's the point? What's the point of all this other stuff? So, Greg, what's, what's the, what's the point of learning Latin? Uh, I want to be able to read uh, Cicero and other ancient uh, philosophers uh, in the original language. All right, and that just brings another what's the point? <laughs> so, <laughs> why? Um, who is Cicero, anyway? Well, ultimately, I, I, when, when, a, when, a, when a writing is really important to me, I don't want to trust the translation because I know translations can go in a lot of different ways. Uh, but the bigger goal for me right now is that um, I'm working on this project that I'm trying to show the, the negative influence that Greek philosophy had on the thinking of the early church. And some of the ancient sources aren't translated, um, or uh, I don't trust the translation, so I want to be able to read the original so I can better assess the influence that they had on the thinking of the early church. Okay, so Latin then isn't an end in itself. Learning Latin helps you to achieve no. some other thing, which is being able to uh, dialogue in this area of theology where the Greek uh, philosophy has influenced and, and what, what will that result in for people? Well, so how, how will that What I'm really interested in is I, I, I really believe that um, uh, the, a lot, the, the picture of God that the early church arrived at uh, because of its, the philosophical influence from Greek uh, ended up with a, with a picture of God that was not as beautiful as we, what we find in the New Testament. And a lot of people, I find, have a view of God that is influenced by this Hellenistic philosophy that is really rather ugly. And so by showing them how that comes not from the Bible but from Greek philosophy, I'm hoping that I can help get them free to see a, a more beautiful picture of God. And then if they have this more beautiful picture of God, what will that accomplish for them? Well, it's like we talked about earlier. Um, they'll, they'll be more in love with God. Their lives will be more transformed by God. I also think that, that it presents 
presents a more plausible picture of God to the non-Christian world out there. A lot of people don't believe in God because the God that they're presented is really pretty unbelievable okay. uh, in, a, in a negative way. So, so as, you're, as you're studying Latin and doing all those crazy things to study Latin, we'll talk about in a minute what that actually involves. But So are you seeing something in your mind then? Are you seeing these people, yeah. certain people's lives being changed? What, what's going on? Yeah, I, I get motivated when I think about... Uh, I Actually, one of the ways I do it is I actually can picture uh, the book being done. And seeing people, you know, reading it and getting blessed by it and getting freed by it. And I have a way of representing that. All right. So you see how Greg has a, a clear vision. He can see things in his mind. He has a what's the point. It's not just to learn Latin to feel good about himself or just to have another achievement. It's to learn Latin to be able to wrestle with this issue of theology that then plays out in this book where it will end up in freeing people and helping people have a deeper relationship with God. And that plays out over the years. So Greg has a pretty powerful vision. Are there times where you some? kind of feel like, well, I'm sick of this Latin. I'd rather oh, yeah. sit on the couch and eat potato chips and Rub chill out a little bit. And uh, Yeah, uh, th th there definitely is. I mean, it, it gets, especially, you know, almost 50 years old, and the, the languages don't come as, as, I know I don't look it, do I? Yeah, teach an old dog. It, uh, it, so it, it's, it takes a lot of discipline, a lot of work to do it. And there's times where it's like, is this really worth it and whatever. But that's where I, you got to go back and revisit the vision. And I try to see it in color and turn it up. And it creates that energy and that excitement again. And that so you can the see game. then how this works for the vision. It creates the intention, but the intention may flag a little bit. So it needs more of the vision. And so Greg's been doing that. But that still doesn't teach him Latin at all. There's still other things then that he needs to do. So in order to learn Latin, what are the activities that a person would need to do to actually learn Latin? Uh, I, I got to go out and buy a book, a couple books actually, workbooks and things like that because I'm teaching myself this. Um, I've got to make flashcards. I carry on flashcards all the time because you got to memorize all these things. I, I memorize it when I'm, you know, watching television or driving in the car, but I'm safe. I, I don't take my eyes off the road. I just kind of look, see, the, you know, and, and uh, um, yeah, you got to have that. And uh, then I, I, I am buying, like, you know, the, the Vulgate, the Latin Bible, to, in order to you know, read the, the Bible, in, in, not in original, but in Latin, to familiarize myself with the language. So you have to buy some things, which cost you some money. Yeah, you have yeah. to take some time to study and read. You yeah, have to yeah. practice that with these cards while you're driving. Uh, maybe not so much. But yeah, I, you just have to look at it. And, and sometimes you don't feel like do doing that. I do wear a seatbelt. It does wear a seatbelt. Sometimes you don't feel like doing that, but no. you do it. You ramp yourself up to be able to do it again by this, getting this vision back right. in your mind, seeing somebody reading the book that will change their life, right. and that motivates you. So exactly. you see how VIM plays out. Even if Greg wasn't intentionally thinking of VIM, VIM was at work in his being able to study yes. Latin, getting himself, and it works that way with many other things. What does this all have to do with temptation, with this story in Luke 4 as we wrap up this temptation series? We're going to kind of walk out a similar process, and Greg, I'm going to ask you, to kind of imagine being Jesus in this story in Luke 4, mm -hmm. where you're just about to embark on your ministry. You've All been right. put on earth for a mission. You've got a ministry. You've got some kind of a vision for that ministry. Mm -hmm. But here you are confronted with some temptation. Yeah. The enemy's coming. He's putting different ideas or possibilities into your mind. And you're about to resist the temptation. And so tell us, if you were in Jesus' situation, what would be going on? What's the point? Why resist temptation? Sure. Uh, I believe that Jesus is uh, here as a, he's seeing these uh, options presented to him. He could go down that road. But what he's seeing is the beauty of his unbroken relationship with the Father that would be jeopardized by that. He's seeing, I think, the joy that was set before him. It talks about in Hebrews. Uh, he's seeing the redeemed, the joy of the redeemed, the beauty of forgiveness, uh, the eternity spent with, with these folks, and he's seeing that the only way to get there is by going through the way of Calvary, which means saying no to the way of the enemy. All right. 
So we can't know for sure that those things were going on in Jesus' mind, but there are other verses in the Bible that give us hints at the kinds of things that Jesus used to give himself a vision. And for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. So we know that he somehow found joy in suffering for a purpose, for God's will, and that that would bring our redemption. Mm -hmm. So Greg's kind of given us an idea of what might have been going on as Jesus' vision. He didn't just show up and, and just decide then to, to resist temptation. He had a vision that drove him in that. Um, but then he had to keep that vision going. So he had intentions, he had commitments, he had decisions to make. So Greg, he had to decide on the spot here to resist temptations. But what are some other decisions or commitments that Jesus would probably have had to make before that day? Sure. What would he have had to be committed to or what would he have had to decide? Yeah, um, you know, it says in Luke that he, he grew in wisdom and stature. He had to grow in wisdom because he was a full human being. And so it, that suggests that he studied the scripture. And the episode when he was 12 years old suggests that he was regularly in the scripture and and uh, when he opened up his ministry, he was reading from the scripture. And then when he's tempted by the devil, he quotes the scripture. So this was a guy who was really into the scripture. Uh, he also prayed all the time. Luke always mentions in particular that he, uh, he would go for a whole night and, and go into the desert to pray. And he prayed at other times regularly. Uh, he attended the synagogue regularly. He was a churchgoer, uh, which is a good thing. Uh, he fasted regularly. Uh, he, would, you know, he was fasting when these temptations uh, happened. So, so all, a lot of of these, discipline. all of these things that we see when we read about the life of Jesus were activities, training activities that he did he trained. that helped him to be able to resist temptation in the game. And Greg mentioned that earlier. It's what you do outside of temptation that determines what you do in temptation. So Jesus had to know scripture. He had to know that there was an invisible enemy, that that enemy was a liar and very crafty in yes. his lies. He had to trust the word of God. He had to know the word of God and then trust it and value it in order to defer to that over these temptations. He had to have this vision. He had to have the intention. He had practiced many means outside of the game to get this down in his soul so that when temptation came, he was ready. And that's the way it works for all of us as well. We, these principles of VIM, it's a pretty simple process. It works for anything from learning how to play the piano to resisting the enemy, resisting temptation, to growing in the fruit of the Spirit. And with God's help, of course, he empowers us, he gives us the vision, he gives us the power, he helps us to make the commitment. But he doesn't do all the work for us, he requires us to cooperate yes. with him and, and train along with him. So what we want to do as you guys, uh, as we wrap up this series on temptation, um, we want to send you guys away with just this model, this VIM model. We're planning on incorporating it more and more into how we do uh, discipleship here, how we do sermons and teaching here at Woodland Hills. And what we want to do is uh, at the back of the church as you walk out, there's a half sheet of paper like this on the tables. This is a little exercise that you can do as an individual or preferably in covenant groups to continue to learn the VIM model, particularly in resisting temptation. It has to do with picking one of the three lies that you're most vulnerable to and then applying the VIM process to how you're going to resist temptation mm -hmm. in that area. So grab one of these on your way out. Do it in your covenant group. Do it with your wife, your husband, your kids. But in order for you guys to have a real powerful vision to get the, a head start on a vision that will help you mo motivate yourself to resist temptation. We're going to end this service today with a reflection. And I've asked uh, Ruth Richmond to come up and play a little soft piano music as we walk through a reflection here that's going to be a vision casting exercise for you of why resist temptation. I want you to close your eyes for a moment and just get comfortable in your seat where you're at. Holy Spirit, make this real. Yes, and Lord. use it, Lord God, to just plant seeds that would bring about permanent change in our lives. Yes, Father. In Jesus' name. And so with your eyes closed and just getting comfortable, I'm just going to ask you to use your imagination to enter into a vision of what it means to resist the devil's temptation in your life. And this resistance is not merely for the purpose of escaping punishment or getting points from God. It's about something much more beautiful and profound than that. 
So just imagine Jesus in your mind after walking through these temptations in the wilderness and successfully defeating the devil's schemes. Realize that as a result of this victory, he was then ready and able to begin a powerful work that literally changed the world. His choice here to resist the lures and the lies of the enemy prepared him to walk in the kind of ongoing obedience and yieldedness to his Father God that allowed God then to powerfully bring truth and healing to many people, even you and I sitting here today, centuries later. In your mind, just see Jesus working his miracles, teaching crowds of hurting and needy people, see him embodying love and grace towards these people wherever he went and whenever he encountered them. And in doing all these things, he was destroying the works of the enemy and bringing life. And he was able to do all of this because he had a vision, a powerful vision, of what it meant to resist temptation, to do anything but God's loving will. So just imagine those things and see them in your mind. Now imagine yourself as you train to resist temptation more and more in your life and see yourself becoming more and more like Jesus himself, a powerful vessel available for God to use in his kingdom. Imagine yourself as a man or a woman who lives out truth as Jesus did here. Picture yourself as one who recognizes the lies of the enemy and has God's word always at your fingertips, available to guide you and keep you from falling. See yourself defeating the enemy and see him fleeing from you because his tricks just don't work on you anymore. And see yourself now fulfilling God's unique calling and purpose for you in your years on earth and just see how all of that contributes to the advancement of his kingdom a year from now, five years from now, ten years from now, and long after you've died and gone to be with Jesus, touching lives of people you'll never meet until heaven because you were faithful to resist temptation and you had the vision And then just ask yourself as you're imagining all these things in your mind, and seeing and tasting and sensing and touching and hearing them in your imagination, just ask yourself, do you really want all this? Do I really want this? And what am I willing to do in order to get it? Am I willing to do whatever is in my power to grow into being this kind of person? the kind of person who is really able to recognize and resist temptation wherever and whenever it may come. And now if you are ready to personally commit to a personal training process of growing in Christ-likeness and particularly growing and resisting temptation, just want you to say a quiet prayer in your heart to your Heavenly Father, 
and just commit to him to do anything that's in your power to begin to train to become like Jesus in this area. A person who is determined to live for the will of God and resist anything less. Just speak that prayer in your heart to God. Thank you for your example of faithfulness and of perseverance and that you learned obedience through the things that you suffered and that you'll help us to learn and to train as well. And so we commit ourselves here today to truly be your disciples and we ask that you'd give the, us the wisdom in this training program and starting here with this commitment to resist temptation. We just give that to you and ask that you would help us to have a powerful vision to make a personal, strong commitment and then to do what's in our power to do to be successful in the battle. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a need for prayer at all, I'm going to ask the altar team to come forward right now and they'll be available here for prayer for you. If you are an unbeliever and you're wanting to come and give your life to Christ today, out in the back in the gathering area, we have an information table and there are some folks there that would be happy to talk with you and pray with you to accept Christ into your life. God bless you.